We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, everyone. Before we get to this week's interview, I've got to give you the proverbial quick note. I wanted to let you guys know about a fun chess-related Kickstarter project that's ending pretty soon on November 21st. It's for a chess robot called Square Off. It features an automated chess board where you make your move on the board, and then the board itself moves the pieces in reply. It's got a cool design, and you can use it to play against the computer itself or to play online games. I was made aware of this Kickstarter by Guven Manet, who's a friend and supporter of Perpetual Chess and is also the president of the multicultural chess club called the Satrank Club 2000 in Cologne, Germany. After Guven sent me a link describing the project, I checked it out and decided to back it myself. And I look forward to getting my own square off computer in June of 2020. If you'd like to check out the Kickstarter for yourself, please look at the link in the show description. Okay, on to the show. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with chess players, personalities, authors, and adult improvers about their lives, their careers, and about chess improvement. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have a very excited and often requested guest joining us today. He is a philosopher, the three-time British chess champion, and, of course, the author of some classic chess books, The Seven Deadly Chess Sins and Chess for Zebras. And now, as we release this interview today, he has a new book being released uh, called The Moves That Matter, A Chess Grandmaster on the Game of Life. Um, I read it and greatly enjoyed it, and, of course, we'll be discussing it. But first, let's get our guest in here, Grandmaster Jonathan Rouse, and thank you for joining us. Hello. Nice to be here. I'm so excited to to speak with you. I've been a fan of yours since the Seven Deadly Chess Sins. That book was was just a landmark. I mean, it, it. I think for a lot of chess fans, it's sort of a formative book. I mean, it was a original uh, original idea, greatly executed and uh, helpful for chess. On top of that, but I feel like we should start with with your new book. So, um, how how long has this project been in the making? I read an allusion to it being a multi year project somewhere, but I just wanted to verify from you, Jonathan. Yeah, it's been a, a long process, um, which began, I suppose, all the way back in 2006, um, when I was given the chance to write about chess um, for a national newspaper in Scotland called The Herald. And that was at a time when it was already clear that if you're going to be writing a newspaper column, there isn't really much point in giving the kind of sporting commentary of who's winning and what happened in a tournament and what the game was, because all of that information is already available online. So the challenge is, well, how do you add some something distinctive and, and do something worthwhile when you have that opportunity? And I realized the challenge for me was to make sense of what was happening in the chess world for a general audience. Um, and that was back, as I say, after I won the British Championship for the third time. And it was maybe when I was already beginning to think about moving on from chess a little bit. Um, but I was more interested in making sense of what this game means for the world at large. Um, and that led to, I think I did that column for several years until 2013 or so. And then about 2015, 16, I started thinking, you know, 
I should look again at that material and, and um, make more of it. And so I worked for several years, three or four, um, part-time mostly, but quite intensely, trying to turn it into a coherent story, you know, giving it a kind of narrative arc and giving it some structure and adding a bit of depth to it and making it more like a book and, and less like a collection. And so after several drafts of that, and by several I really mean about 3,000, I mean, I mean, exaggerate slightly, but it was a lot of a lot of rethinking and reworking, such that the book is now its own original composition. Um, but that probably, so if you look at it that way, it's really something like, you know, 13 years in the making part-time. Wow. That's, that's staggering 13 years, but, but I mean, it shows. And I, how did you, so you end up presenting it in sort of a, uh, a chess, uh, friendly format in that it's, uh, eight by eight, uh, eight chapters, yeah. um, totaling, well, 64 mini chapters, I guess you could call them. So how did yeah, you settle yeah, on, yeah. on that format? Well, it's an interesting story, actually. Um, you probably know the London Chess Classic every December. Um, they have this uh, chess conference alongside the tournament. And one year I was invited to just give a short talk, and I don't think there was any subject matter for it. Um, and I decided to say, look, why don't I give a talk on what chess taught me about life? I think this was to Malcolm Payne that I agreed at the time. Uh, and then I thought, okay, well, I've agreed that now, so what, what has chess taught me about life? You know, what, what do I really have to say, and how can I structure that in a talk? that will make sense to people. And my experience of public speaking is that if you're not going to have slides or notes or any other props, you have to structure the material quite clearly in your own mind so that people can follow you and, and keep track of where you're going. And so I thought, well, what are the main themes, uh, or main sort of uh, takeaway, take home messages that I, I have, that I've learned? So some of them survived to the book and you may, we may come back to them later, but um, at, during that lecture, I developed them, sort of one-liners about um, what chess taught me about life. So, for example, the, in the first chapter of the book, I call it Concentration is Freedom. Now, that may not have been exactly how I crystallized it at the time, but that was the kind of thing. And then the second chapter, it's called the matter, It's the Mattering that Matters. It's about the nature of competition. And then I have, um, we, we need to make peace with our struggle at some point. And then I have... Um, that we need to give the autopilot our tender, loving care, and these sort of things. They won't make much sense to your listeners off the bat, but my point is I was trying to find ways of distilling, uh, in essence, what chess taught me, and then use that as a kind of springboard to explain the connection. Because what I was very keen not to do was do what many books have done before, which is say, you know, chess is about thinking three moves ahead and mm -hmm. not the opponent, and yada, 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 all the things that we've heard before. Trying to get much more deeply into chess as a metaphor, not merely for business or politics or strategy, but life as such, the human predicament, you know, the kind of existential struggle of just trying to make it through the day and make meaning out of life. Um, and so um, the reason I came to that structure was I wanted it to be complex enough um, so that it could do justice to the material and the depth of chess and the you know richness of life. But I also wanted it to be accessible enough that people could sort of see themselves um, in those main messages and, and that they would be kind of intelligible enough that they would go, oh, I sort of see what you mean there, but not so intelligible that they felt they didn't have to read the book. So that was the, the aim. And, and uh, I don't know if it's worth just mentioning what they are now because they're sort of a kind of a good segue in some ways. I mean, the the... You know, if I had to sum up on in bullet points what Chess taught me about life, the, the chapter headings, the chapter sort of um, um, takeaways sure. are that con that concentration is freedom. It's the mattering that matters. Our autopilots need our tender, loving care. Escapism is a trap. Algorithms are puppeteers. We need to make peace with our struggle. There is another world, and it is in this world. And happiness is not the most important thing. Um, and each of those, as you know, in the book are held together by opposites, which is also a little bit chessical because it's got the kind of darkness and lightness aspect. But the first chapter is thinking and feeling. The second is winning and losing. The third is learning and unlearning. It goes on like that, these little couplets, which kind of hold the tension of the chapter. Um, and then within that, we have these eight vignettes. So yeah, like you say, it's kind of eight by eight. Uh, 64, um, and but there is a kind of narrative structure to it. It does help to read from front to back, but mm -hmm. 
equally you can dip in and, and I don't think you'd necessarily miss much if you just took one at a time at random. That's interesting. I didn't think of reading it in a nonlinear fashion. But but first off, I just want to say that at least in, in my case, you, you succeeded in making it relatable. I'm obviously not a grandmaster, um, but certainly I think anyone who devotes a lot of time in their life, which is probably, you know, 80 to 90 percent of the people listening to this podcast, uh, they grapple at some point with the questions of um, uh, how good a use of their time is, what is the broader what is the broader role of chess in their life? Yeah. Um, and and you you really do a good job contextualizing that for for someone of of your uh, strength in chess and and experience. Um, and as you said, we you you bullet pointed the chapters. Um, we can't you know we can't go through the whole book, but the the concentration is freedom chapter really resonated with me. So I was curious if you could just mm-hmm. uh, maybe flesh that idea out a little bit for our listeners. Well, yeah. So here's the thing. I mean, like I, uh, you know, just to some context, I mean, I, 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 chess was a huge part of my life um, since learning at the age of five and then maybe uh, intensifying the process from the age of about 11 onwards. And until I was about early 30s, it was, you know, very substantial amount of my time. So I know chess sort of pretty well from an experiential level. I know what it's like to be at the board. I know what it's like to prepare, to win, lose, and the rest of it. Um, and what I can say is that looking at it from a distance now, because I haven't played very seriously for about a decade, is that it looks increasingly to me like chess is a kind of pretext for concentration. That actually the experience of concentration is so valuable and so necessary and so therapeutic that we actually set up this elaborate game of knights and bishops and rooks and kings and queens as a sort of gateway to this drug that is concentration. That it's actually something that we need, almost like a kind of um, process by which our minds defragment. And the world has become so kind of distracted and noisy and, and challenging that we so rarely get that precious experience of just being able to sit there and think uh, in relative silence, um, and that that is invaluable. Like we consume a lot of silence or imbibe a lot of silence through playing chess, and that's the kind of collateral benefit of the game that I don't think we give quite enough thought to. Um, so it's an enormous, a big part of the game, a really valuable part of it. And when I say it's freedom, what I really mean is that um, not the freedom of um, what's often called negative freedom, freedom where people, which you know, things that stop you doing things. So uh, free, you know, you might say your freedom is constrained if you're not allowed to, I don't know, walk in your neighbor's garden or, or, or if you're not allowed to break the law in various ways. But the freedom I'm talking about is more like the freedom to, the freedom, freedom for things, the freedom to become things, and the freedom to self-actualize in certain ways. And for that, concentration is an absolute prerequisite because if you can't attend to your own willpower, your own sense of purpose and meaning, if you can't find the space and time to think of that, you often end up living somebody else's life. You often end up following the social cues of your culture that tell you what success is and what you should desire and who you should be. And before you know it, you wake up and you're 60 mm-hmm. or 70 or 80 or 90 or whatever it's, the age of the day is. Um, and, um, and you find, hang on, actually, I never really realized what I wanted to do. I never really woke up to it. And I, I think I'm saying that the experience of concentration and the capacity to make concentration part of your life is necessary to live a life that's free in that in that richer sense, and uh, that sense of actually choosing your own life, being your own agent. Um, so that's that's kind of what that chapter is about. But obviously, as you know, I, I reflect on various aspects of that, like the experience of time that chess gives you as well, and how chess structures our sense of time and what it's like to run out of time and to, to have time to think and decide. Um, so yeah, that's a rough overview. Well, well said. And, uh, I know that, um, the, the, the studies about the academic benefits of chess, um, as I recall, you, you reference, uh, one, one study that, that didn't, um, didn't have as robust results as we were hoping for, although certainly there've been, been other studies that have, but one consistent theme and this held true in my life and other people I know's lives is uh, chess can certainly help with with test taking for the reasons that you you outline and of course and as you mentioned in today's day and age the ability to concentrate is uh, more um, more in danger than ever. Yeah, it really is, and and um, I mean there's another side to this, which is you know as you say all chess players have 
sort of dark nights of the soul when they wonder, you know, why am I giving so much of my time and energy to this board game? Um, what do I expect from it? What is it really doing for me? And that question is, you know, fascinating because I've been there. I've, 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 I've woken up in the morning and run to the chess, not quite run, but, you know, <laughs> gone to the chessboard and, and, and looked around at the position and trying to make sense of what's going on. I've, you know, hunted down back in the day editions of, you know, ECO to find out what's happening in some Sicilian variation, B-52 or whatever, because that's really what matters at that point in time. But now that I'm a bit distant from it, I think, what's that all about? You know, like, where, where is that impulse coming from? What does the game mean that it would captivate people so much? And I think that partly it's experience of concentration, but as you know from the book, there's also something about the role of chess and character formation and the role of chess in sort of working through things emotionally and psychologically in ways that we can't, you know, readily explain. It's not as though we have a particular problem in our life and chess helps us sort it out. But it does give us a kind of safe space to we sort of work through things and, and experience things differently, such that uh, some of the more difficult aspects of our life are channeled in certain ways. And through that process, we build, hopefully, a more or less robust identity. Um, but it doesn't always work out. As you know, lots of, lots of people place their hopes in the game and then fall apart as well. So um, I hope the book captures that spirit of chess being a wonderful you know, beautiful, majestic game that I love deeply, but also seeing through it to some extent, recognizing that there is a sense in which the game doesn't always give you what you need and that there there are limits to what it can offer as well. So, yeah, I, I think it does capture that. And um, one thing that that made me sort of try to tie together is uh, you, you only mentioned this a little bit in the book, but you've also talked about it on Twitter a bit, but that your older son is now getting into chess. So from, yeah. from, from the parents' perspective, how do you, how do you look at like the, the role of chess for your child and how much to teach him and how hard to push him and all of that fun stuff? Yeah. 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 It's just, those are difficult questions because it's so, uh, I'm so close to it. And, um, well, I've had some funny experiences recently. Uh, Kailash is my 10-year-old's older son, and he um, he came to chess relatively late. Like He's only really started playing the last year or so. Um, but he suddenly got very good and started, you know, I had to go down to my basement to dig out my old chess books, and hmm. um, he started like asking me you know, theoretical questions about the night orphan stuff. And I, I was, this was from a relatively low start. So it's, you know, he was a bit beyond... His, his level of questioning was sort of somewhat beyond his actual strength. He was still blundering his queen and stuff right. quite regularly. But, I mean, um, I, uh, I noticed him getting very good very quickly. I also noticed how the game was captivating him, and he started watching YouTube videos, and he, he would go to chess tournaments. He'd want to take home Magnus paraphernalia. You know, he has a Magnus, um, what do you call it, uh, like a, a placemat for a drink. And, and I'm sort of thinking the chess is getting into his system in the way he got into mine. It's getting, it's getting under the skin. Mm-hmm. And I don't mind that. There's a part of me that thinks that's a good thing. But I also see how it can completely take you over. And yeah. um, I think my, my job as parent is to somehow um, allow him to live his life such that he makes his own choices. But guide as gently and deftly as one can so that it, he only really lets it take possession of him if that's meant to happen at some level rather than because the game acquires this addictive escapist force. He has so much else going on in his life. Um, he plays the violin, he, he has lots of schoolwork, he has friends, etc. that I want chess to be part of his life. And if it so happens that somehow it takes off, then we'll deal with that when it happens. But I certainly won't be sad if it remains a relatively small part of his life. Yeah, I mean, from what I can gather about your your personality and your perspective, you're you're at less risk of pushing pushing your child too hard into chess than maybe some other uh, chess parents. Well, I think um, you probably know towards the end of the book, it gets you know in some ways even more reflective and existential. But I, I actually, you know, I don't think chess is really the answer. I think chess is more like the question. Chess helps us to sort of orient ourselves in certain ways. But I don't really see that winning chess games, even getting very good at chess, becoming a grandmaster, even becoming world top 100 or top 10 or whatever, um, for, some, for somehow I don't think that really solves our ex- existential predicament. It's not as though the problems of life go away. You know, As you know in the book, I worked with Vichy Anand a little bit, and I, 
I know a lot of the very strongest grandmasters, and I still speak to some of them now and again. And, you know, they face the similar kind of problems. You know, they still, still have doubts about whether they wasted their time. They, some of them are very frustrated. They can't make any further progress. Some of them are under a lot of pressure from different quarters. Um, so I actually don't think pushing someone to achieve, I think in some ways the book's really about the limitations of the achievement orientation. It's about the idea that, you know, the chess culture is so much about get better and win, get better and win, get better and win. I guess I'm just saying, look, that is a current of life. It is important. And in some ways, you need to forge your character through that caring process of wanting to win. But equally, you've got to see through it. You've got to realize that ultimately, there's something beyond that. that There's more to life than winning and losing. We know that already, but you've really got to experience that. Yeah, well well said. Um, And since you mentioned working on Team Anand and, of course, being friendly with uh, former world champion Vishy Anand, um, one sort of through line that I thought might be interesting is you, t- I, I feel like, uh, I mean, I think, uh, anyone listening to this show, first of all, you should buy the book, you should read it, you will love it. But I feel like it should be mentioned that it, that it's not the seven deadly chess sins or chess for zebras. No. There's, there's no, no chess instruction. There's some, some cool yeah. games and some cool studies in the footnotes. Yeah. So you get, you yeah. get to wet your beak a little bit, but, uh, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But primarily, it's uh, more of a meditation. But I do, I did enjoy some of the stories. So, could you share? Um, could you share the the stories you told about working on uh, Anand's World Championship team in his match yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. against Kramnik? Sure, sure. Just just before that, just to reiterate, I, I I appreciate the point you made, and I've noticed already a lot of people saying, "Oh, I can't wait for your book to come out." I love Chess for Zebras, and I love Seven of the Chess Internet. And part of me is glad to hear that, but part of me winces because I know that look. If you're looking for a similar book, it's, this is not that. I think the voice might be somewhat similar and discerning readers can draw a connection in terms of the creative process. But um, this is a book for chess players who want to think about what it means to play chess and, and why the game might matter, not for chess players who want to know how to win the next game. Right. Um, so coming on to um, my experience with uh, Anand, um, well, um I think the main thing to say there was, is it, is it, I mentioned this in the chapter called Cyborgs and Civilians, which is really about the impact of technology on the game and a broader reflection on technology in the context of you know, life at the present moment with developments in artificial intelligence and robotics and uh, you know, coming to terms with that and how, how that's going to be in the next few decades. Um, and my, I situate that in the context of Vichy preparing to play Kramnik in 2008 and particularly his surprise weapon of playing D4, being a lifelong E4 player and formidable with that. But he also made the resolute decision that for this match, he was going to prepare a completely new opening with white, which was to play D4. And, um, and I, you know, without giving, even now, I don't want to give away the sort of minutiae of that, but essentially you can imagine that was an awful lot of work and an awful lot of learning of new things. And I was a D4 player, so I had some, you know, grounding in that. But I also, I wasn't really there as an elite grandmaster because I was never really an elite player. I was sort of, um, I suppose, at my best, a sort of strong middleweight or something like that, uh, you know, better than some entry-level grandmasters, but not as good as the very best. But what I did have was a strong rapport with Vichy. My wife's Indian, so there was a natural uh, desire for wanting the kind of home side to win, but also just more personally than that. And there was also a, a, a real strong desire to know what it's like to prepare at that very highest level, to really see just how deeply they go, how much care is taken, how they organize it all. Um, and in that sense, it was a real eye-opener. You know, I really got to see, um, I think they say in the book that the experience was valuable, not because it was spectacular, but because it was ordinary. And by that, I mean, you know, I got to see World Championship preparation in the context of people washing dishes and buying groceries and taking decisions about when to end the day and what kind of music to play while we're studying. You know, I got that kind of human side of what it's like to try to get to the, the, the nth degree of a variation that will determine whether something is promising or not. And I particularly remember a line, all I'll say is it was in the semi-slav, but I was trying to make something work for white. And I was really very keen that it would work. I was sort of almost dogmatic about it. Um, and I was, we were looking on the screens and uh, I was taken away with just 
how much of the preparation was, you know, on the screen with the analysis engine and how little of it was anything else. But I remember at that moment thinking, okay, I'm just going to go and look at the test set. You know, I'm just going to mm-hmm. walk away from the screen, go to the side of the room. And I remember Peter Heine Nielsen, who was there, the Danish Grandmaster, um, looking at me with, like, I remember the sort of look at his face. It was a kind of sympathetic but incredulous look, <laughs> um, saying, you know, it's really not that easy. You know, if you really thought you could figure it out at the board, then you haven't been paying attention. So um, I tried, I came back, and yeah, sure enough, what they'd concluded previously, I couldn't change the view of. Um, but I got a sense of just how difficult it is to make inroads on critical lines, how many hours are put in to get there, and also just the relationship with the engines and how, what exactly the humans are doing. Because the analogy I use in the book is that it's like we're discerning tourists asking good questions to a tour guide. So if you imagine theoretically the tour guide knows almost everything about an area and you're a tourist and you turn up and you say, you know, you're in London and you say, where's Big Ben? That's a really simple question. But if you say something like, um, uh, when, when the building work was happening to uh, renovate Big Ben, how did they manage to ensure that it rang um, 24 times a day instead of its periodic uh, ringing every quarter of an hour? You know, a more discerning question like that. And what the Grandmaster does is it knows enough to answer that kind of, to ask that kind of question of the machine. It, it doesn't just ask a kind of, if I go there, he goes there, space bar, space bar, space bar, follow the line. We get a bit better exploring lines that the computer initially rejects, but which we think have some promise because of some feature of the position that the computer might slightly misassess. Um, but it was just a real eye I just sort of thought, if this is chess now, if this is it, sitting in this darkened room studying with these engines, and this is what it takes to be one of the best, I just thought, well, good luck to them. You know, it's, you know, I know many people are doing that now, and uh, they enjoy it, and you know, that's their life, and fairly well but um for me it didn't feel like my life or my future so i i was glad to see that yeah and uh, here we are 11 years later and engines are you know the gap between engines and humans has expanded greatly um it has it has yeah exactly back then it looks almost funny to look i was talking in the book about the importance of using four cores back then which was a big deal at the time but it isn't really anymore at all so yeah i enjoyed that little anecdote um yeah it's uh and it's it's uh, as we were just saying. It's a trend that, that's accelerating, and you you also mentioned later in the book that, and possibly related to this experience, you've sort of developed a, a distaste for openings, um, in in well, particular. Yeah, that's that's maybe a little too strong. I hear what you're saying, and I do sort of say that. But what I really meant was, there's a lovely quotation by, and I think I do mention this in one of my earlier books by Bobby Knight, the U.S. basketball coach. She says, "The will to win is not as important as the will to prepare to win." And I think that's profoundly true. I think uh, showing up and giving your best is is hard enough, and, and and you know it's important. But what's even harder is finding the energy and willpower to keep preparing and keep getting ready for the battle. And I think what happened to me at some point is I used to quite love opening theory. I had quite a diverse, broad repertoire. I had a few, you know, like any strong player who's well prepared. I had various little nuances and different lines, and I, I understood my variations. But at some point, I found the, the the feeling of trying to prepare the openings began to feel like a waste of time. And it was a kind of revelation because it's like, I didn't have that will to prepare to win anymore. You know, I could still turn up at the board and give my best, but I no longer had that desire away from the board to think, yes, this next half hour, or this next hour ahead of me, the best thing I can do with that time is prepare this opening variation. No, I, that feeling had gone. Um, and that was when I realized that I had gone, I sort of realized my, my days of playing chess professionally were numbered. But you still you still follow chess. Um, I mean, you, yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, I love it. I mean, I you know, like it's still it's like I think I say in the book, my you know, I'm, I, I I still find it very interesting, and, and in a sense, it's, it has a certain importance that I try and capture in the book. But it's not the same feeling of being possessed by it. Mm-hmm. I no longer see. I no longer look to the game for answers as such. I see it more like a lens through which to look at life. Um, and I still am highly entertained by it. You know, I watch every so often, you probably see from Twitter, I just, I notice something that's happening and I'm very impressed by it. And some particular detail of a game, I'm strong enough that I can be charmed by some hidden detail that, you know, I'm lucky enough to be able to understand. 
uh, and excites me. You know, I, I watched, for example, recently on the Isle of Man event, uh, my good friend Luke McShane was playing Caruana, and it looked like he was going to beat Caruana, which oh, obviously yeah, I remember that game. result for him. Yeah, and it was kind of an epic contest, and it, it really looked like it was winning, and um, Caruana defended brilliantly. Luke actually executed brilliantly. Like, he was, you know, he really every single, playing the best move almost all the time. Until quite close to the end, he made an inaccuracy, and that was enough for Caruana to hold on. But I followed that game avidly, you know, like a spectator. But unlike in the past, where I would have followed it almost thinking, I really need to understand this, um, you know, I'm part of that world. I was very much detached from it. It was, it was more like watching a, a sports game or something. You know, it just it wasn't really, I wasn't invested in the outcome in the same way, apart from wanting to win because I, you know, because he's a friend. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the love of chess is there, but I think the book is really about what it's like when that love matures. Um, and I think I say actually quite close to the end of the introduction, different ways that I love chess. I think I say, let me see if I can find it here. Um, yeah, I just say for about half of my childhood, chess was central to my idea of who I was and what the world was about. I love the game with all the pain, need and longing that is wrapped up in love. I have loved chess as a child loves a guardian who keeps them safe. As a teenage boy loves a girl who represents love itself. As a young adult loves his newfound autonomy and his place in the community. As a student loves his teacher, as a friend loves his friend, and as a father loves a child. I am no longer sure exactly how I love chess, but it is in all these ways and more. And that's kind of the spirit of the book. It's like, you know, it's no longer about, oh my God, what a great game, you know, getting high on it, trying to win giving yourself over to it, which is sort of the childish infatuation kind of love. It's more like a kind of somewhat detached parental, you know, glad to be associated with, but no longer caught up in kind of feeling. Yeah. Although, although you also tell a few stories that make it sound like, like, for example, I'm thinking of the story where, uh, with, uh, Peter Hein Nielsen, when you see him in London and then, yeah. uh, the one where you, with Lev Sakis and Alex Baboran, uh, both grandmasters at uh, Faroe Islands, uh, examples yeah. of where maybe your your competitive zeal wasn't quite um, quite as high as I a lot of your compatriots. That's right. I mean, I think this is probably true, and from a distance, again, it's clearer now. But for me, my excitement with chess and my love of being part of the chess world, it was always quite strongly mediated by a desire to make sense of the game and a desire to learn from it and to learn more about ourselves from it. And you can see that in the reason think zebras and or zebras rather and um, the seven set the chessons did well is that that's what readers are picking up on. They're picking up on a, a, a strong chess player trying to make sense of what the game means in a more general sense. Um, and that's fine. There's not not in and of itself a handicap. But when it becomes difficult is when you're trying to rise in the grandmasterly ranks and you're already you know just outside the world top hundred um it's quite difficult at that point if you care about things like oh that was an interesting game um i don't mind that i lost it because i learned something that doesn't really work you know at that level competitive instinct and the desire to conquer is preeminent you know the desire to win at all costs should override all of the other values of the game but for me I realized I was very attached to the kind of educative and aesthetic aspects of the game, which yeah. I think the stronger players managed to override with a more single-minded determination. Yeah, sort of more of an academic perspective. Kind of academic, philosophical maybe. I mean, it was um, therapeutic even. You know, I had a kind of... this Trying to make sense of the game was always part of it for me, and uh, that was the hu humanistic side of it. Whereas I think there are people like Magnus who just treat it you know, pretty much like a sport. You know, it's like who's the best and you know how do you win more games for me that was never the overriding question yeah and it seems like it's in order to reach magnus's level i mean only one person currently is at magnus's uh, yeah. level yeah, but yeah, yeah. um but yeah it seems like it's helpful to have that killer instinct yeah and like i say it's a killer instinct that doesn't just apply in one moment of the game it applies across every day of the year you know it's like the instinct to prepare and think of yourself primarily as a competitor who's trying to get better and uh, achieve more competitively rather than someone who's trying to communicate some sort of sense of meaning or purpose that's hidden within the game. Um, so yeah, those conversations that I meant that you alluded to, I do reflect on various moments in my sort of chess journey where I kind of realized 
what my limitations were. Um, and they were connected to not being single-minded enough. Um, I was I could turn on the switch that says, okay, focus on your next game now. And I could do that for a few games at a time and win the old tournament and whatnot. But um, to do it as a lifestyle was a bit beyond me. Yeah, and maybe differentiated you a bit from... I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, it's not not all bad yeah. by any means. I mean, you've, you've accomplished an, uh, an incredible amount in, uh, you know, outside of the chess world, um, which I guess now is as good a time as any. I mean, I, I think a lot of people who follow you on Twitter might be familiar, but what is your what is your work outside of uh, the chess world entail? Right. So it's it's not completely straightforward to explain, but the way to think about it is that um, and I mentioned this in the book, uh, just after working with Vichy and just after I think I played the Dresden Olympiad in 2008, around about that time, uh, I was becoming a father shortly after it for the first time. And I got a job in London at the Royal Society of Arts, which is a slightly misleading title because it's really, it was really a public policy job. And I, I worked in research on issues relating to climate change and inequality in education and uh, there was some stuff on policing and some stuff on banking and basically I got a very sort of generalist approach to thinking of policy but what made my job a bit different is that because of my academic background which was mostly in kind of philosophy and theoretical psychology I was thinking from about these questions from quite a a deep uh, sort of foundational level so my question is what are the underlying assumptions about human nature that drive these public policy programs? What are they expecting people to do and be and learn for these things to work? And what you often find is there's a mismatch between how human beings are and how the models are expecting you to, hmm. to function. Yeah. Um, and that characterized my work for several years. I wrote quite a lot about climate change. And then I had a, a, another part of the book, which is a, a more sort of spiritual existential part, which is asking the big questions of like, which chess also leads to, you know, because at some point you do wonder what's this all about and so the the broader question of what are we all living for if we're not looking for indefinite economic growth if that's not the end of life um and if it's not about consuming more things what are we trying to do and um that led to a public engagement project on spirituality so the combination of the interest in spirituality combined with the kind of public policy background um led to me creating my own organization i got a good co-founder and partner who helped to seed fund it called Thomas Bjorkman, and together we created something called Perspectiva. And then I, my day job is now running this charity, which is a kind of research institute. And our interest is in connecting complex societal challenges to the inner life of human beings. So trying to get better at understanding why we struggle to face up to climate change and act accordingly, for example. Um, how we deal with... Um, questions of uh, society, overall societal purpose and what that means for the educational system. So these kind of, it's all quite um, expansive in scope, but I honestly believe, and this is, again, this is not a gratuitous chess reference, but it's partly what chess taught me, that to be good, you really need to see the whole position. And, you know, to use a, a sort of an analog or an analogy, rather, um, many of society's problems are caused by fractured thinking or fragmented thinking, whereby you're looking at a pawn here and a queen there and a bishop there and maybe a little nugget of a relationship between the knight and the rook there. But really, strength in chess is about beginning to cluster until you get really good and the whole position becomes one kind of pattern in its own right. And that's the same at a societal level. I think our problems are that you know, your economists are saying one thing, your sociologists are saying another, your anthropologists another, and then you have your scientists saying something else entirely, and then there are people going about their own business and watching Netflix and doing whatever else they're doing. Hmm. And there's no one really taking responsibility for the position as a whole. And the kind of thing that my organization, Perspectiva, is trying to do is just get better at that. Um, so we're developing something we call expert generalism, which is really about how to be a better generalist, how to actually get skilled at connecting diverse phenomena. Um, and uh, we're funded by a range of trusts and foundations. And I love it. You know, it's, it's every bit as interesting as chess, if not more so. Um, and uh, unlike chess, where there's a, a real opponent who's trying to kill you, it's also sometimes feels relatively easy as well. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it sounds like fascinating work. And obviously, you, you sound like uh, very well suited for it with your, your academic background and um, 
um, just general um, wisdom. <laughs> um, so, with um, so how many people work at your organization? It's about at the moment. It's relatively small. It's about ten part time. Um, some one or two full time. Um, but we have quite a few associates who do, you know, consultants who come and go. So it's not big in its reach yet, but it's only been alive for about two years. So um, also the question of how big you want to be, right, comes back to the chesting of what are you ultimately trying to do? Like mm-hmm. uh, getting bigger isn't always better. So I'm just trying to find a way of doing meaningful work, uh, Look, you know, do my basic responsibilities towards family and community and, um, see where it leads, uh, but it does seem to be growing of its own accord. You know, it seems to be building on itself, either because of me or in spite of me. But it's certainly <laughs> growing. Uh, that's yeah. good. Good, and obviously, uh, climate change is one of the great challenges of our time, if not the great challenge. So, um, well, I mean, I have thought a few times, not directly in the book, um, but I have occasionally thought about more directly what Chess taught me about climate change, and it, it's not a not a trivial question because the questions arise like. You know, is there an opponent on the climate challenge? Is that is the opponent ourselves? Is it the fossil fuel industry? And then there are issues about you know um, seeing the whole position, as I say, and uh, the challenge of seeing the whole position on climate means thinking of it not just as a an economic challenge or an environmental challenge, but also legal, scientific, moral, cultural, and so forth. Um, and so there are ways of tying together the sort of chess sensibility with a way of thinking about the climate conundrum. So, so is there an opponent? Well, I think um, there's two answers to that. One is the, the, the primary opponent is, um, is the nature of the economic system, right? Which is, which rewards ex- currently uh, rewards uh, extracting fossil fuels to make profit for shareholders. And that that's happening at scale to feed lifestyles that you and I enjoy and that we take for granted. Um, I don't think that the opponent there is so much one person, but if you had to sum it up in a in a you know it's 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 the fossil fuel industry, but it's also what makes the fossil fuel industry possible. Um, so it's not like they're the bad guys; they're sort of doing their job. Um, the issue is, in what way are we complicit in letting them do their job? Yeah. Um. I'm getting depressed just thinking about it. No, no, no. I mean, it's it's a scope. It's a source of. Uh, it's also a source of hope because you know, in chess, you have to make your next move, right? This is the thing about the game that it teaches you this disposition of look. I may want to win this tournament. I may want to win this game, but my job right now is the next move. Mm-hmm. And the better you get at that, the better you get at chess. Will stop. So, and, and I think it's true of climate too. So, what do we need to do? Well, I think for what it's worth. Um, we stop uh, subsidizing things that are causing harm uh, as far as we can without destroying the economic system entirely. You've got to keep the lights on and you've got to make sure people can pay their bills, but you've got to make sure that um, there is a kind of end in sight that actually, just as we have a 50 move rule in chess or a threefold repetition rule that stops things repeating indefinitely, what is clear is that the status quo can't endure. So the question then is just how do we play our next move in such a way that we direct things in the right direction? So some call that the Green New Deal. It doesn't necessarily have to be that. But it has to be something about a vision for the future of energy and consumerism and human behavior that makes sense. And that's why someone needs to take responsibility for that kind of large-scale thinking. And that's something that I think I can try to do partly because of what Chess taught me about seeing the whole position. Okay. Well, um, fingers crossed. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, it's not going to be checkmate anytime soon. But <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, that's the yeah. yeah. Well, as long as neither side is getting mated. <laughs> uh, well, um, I think there are. Yeah, I don't know if you're in a lo- if you're in the island of Tuvalu or the Marshall Islands or something. You are. Yeah. Your king is under fierce attack. Your island yeah. is being underwater, and you know, then it's a bit challenging. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, okay. Well, I think we should bring it back to chess. Um, I, I, no, I'm very happy to. Very happy yeah, to, yeah. I mean, it's, um, I, uh, again, uh, the work you're doing is, uh, quite commendable. And, um, you know, I always, I'm always happy to, to check out stuff that you, that you link to on Twitter and stuff. But, um, you mentioned, um, 
you mentioned that part of what you do is uh, think about how to educate people. So what's, do you have a fully formed opinion on the role of chess in education? Like in a, in, in a utopian world that you design, how would you, to what level would you expose uh, kids to chess and at what age? Wow, that's a good question. Um, so the answer is no, I haven't yet find a fully formed opinion on that. As you know, in the book, I do consider it quite carefully. The challenge with chess and education is not so much making the case for chess and education. It's making case for the relative importance of chess compared to other things that are also important. Um, there's a certain amount of time, a certain amount of resources. Um, and so whenever you say there should be more chess, chess has all these great things, uh, what do you say to the yoga teacher who says the same thing or the language teacher who says the same thing or mm -hmm. the people who want you to do martial arts? Or, you know, you, you need to sort of think through what is the USP of chess instruction and chess experience that you're trying to convey? And I would do that by, I think the way, the way I get to it in the book, uh, in the chapter on learning and unlearning, the third chapter, is I say, this is trying not to back out away from chess again, but basically, um, if you view education primarily through the prism of classrooms, teachers, examination results, then the idea of where should chess be you know, it's hard to answer because of all the constraints I mentioned about other things and what you're really trying to achieve. But if you back up a bit and say, look, here we are, early 21st century, uh, not that early anymore, but, you know, um, and now this is a situation in the world. It's globalized, it's digitalized, ecologically highly compromised. And we have to figure out what do we need to know and be and do to survive and thrive for the next century, let's say. Then the question, then that's an educational question. What do we need to learn, right? How do we need to be? And when you put it that way, what role does chess have? That's the bigger way of asking the question. What does chess give us that we might need as a species to get through and get and, and, and actually live good lives together in a context of, you know, exponential technologies and disappearing islands and violent hurricanes and, you know, droughts and wildfires in California and whatnot. So um, when you put it that way, I think, well, concentration is right at the heart of it. Learning to, learning to concentrate is very important for actually what, what the philosopher James Williams calls will formation, to actually know your own will, to actually create thoughts of your own that aren't just fed to you by advertising or by you know, other forms of media. Um, and in that context, Concentration is crucial, but so is, and I think this is equally important in the context of political polarization, um, appreciation for the opponent's right to exist. A kind of sensibility that says for every move I make, they have one too. Now, obviously, the world is not a sort of two-player chess game. It's a multi-dimensional, multi-player situation. But um, that sensibility that, that encourages objectivity, that says, look, there is another side to my point of view, there are, there are other ways of seeing this, that perspectival shift that says there is more than one way of seeing this position. That comes from chess too. And then you have to say something about the disposition to sit and think, to actually enjoy the experience of thinking, of working things out. That again becomes an important part of a complex world. And then you have issues that are about uh, um, the, the whole position that I mentioned, the capacity to, to sort of grapple with complexity, to actually to see things as a whole, to see the parts and the holes and the relationships between them. Again, that comes from chess. But to make the case at that level of generality will not impress your average um, political decision maker uh, who has to decide what to do with local funds in schools. Because you may make this grand case of the, the dispositions human beings need for the next millennia or whatever, but they'll want to know how am I going to get better results in the school next door or something much more prosaic, right? So the challenge with chess is what can chess do to broaden that conversation, deepen the discussion? And I think that's where chess players in the chess community have some responsibility to speak more fully and wholeheartedly and creatively about just what makes our game so wonderful, right? which is what I've been trying to do in the book, to give more resources, mm -hmm. to give more ways of looking at it, to open up the sense of chess is not just about business strategy and winning and losing. There's a whole world of you know, soul and heart and spirit inside it that we need to articulate better so that 
when it comes to redesigning education and finding Chess's place in it, we have the kind of language we need to make that case. Well, well said, and and it's good to see that you have a proper, like a published, um, um, a promotional team behind you at Bloomsbury. Like uh, you're, I think you're the right person to make this case on a on a widespread level. Although, of course, uh, chess teachers and chess enthusiasts um, all over need to make their cases on sort of a more micro level. Yeah. Um, um, so. I'm excited to see like what happens with your book. I mean, it's uh, as someone who interviews a lot of chess authors, it's, it was nice to see that you've got people uh, doing your bidding for you. Um, and, you know, you've been mentioning on Twitter that you've been recording the audio book, which I think yeah. is something we should definitely plug. I don't know when it comes out, but obviously I think, I think it comes out audio the, only. Yeah, I think it's the same time. I think if, if it's not the same time, you have edition comes out about a week before the UK one, but in November, certainly the audio edition come out. Okay, good. Yeah. Cause I did check Amazon and it wasn't mentioned yet here in the U S right. but, um, but yeah, obviously people listening to this, looking for chess content, uh, on your commutes and, you know, in your earphones, um, that that's something to check for. And you had some, some, uh, amusing comments about the, the experience of recording the audio book. Could you yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, go yeah. into that a bit? Well, um, um, it's a very curious experience. I mean, I haven't done it before. And so the first thing that comes to mind is you have to listen to your own voice much more than you're used to doing. And you begin to notice all sorts of cadences of diction and enunciation and words that are swallowed or words that are well expressed or sentences that were said in the wrong way and therefore have to be done again. And that sort of vigilant attention to exactly what you're saying and what you mean is quite... Um, well, it was a revelation, really, because it's what actors do all the time, and people are paid. I, if I, I was offered to do it initially, but if I, if I hadn't done it, an actor would have done it for me. And then, and then they, the, the kind of person who would do that would be doing maybe several a month, because they just learn how to say it in a way that is, is you know, you know, congenial for their listener. And but the other thing that was a bit strange about it was um, really encountering your own words. Uh, it's it's very meta, right? You're sort of in a room, hearing your own voice, reading your own words, often about your own experience. So there's a kind of you know hall of mirrors in there, and you're trapped right in the middle of it. Um, but and above, you can't change it anymore. You can't really change it anymore, yeah, <laughs> and all of that. And occasionally you read something like, "Say, God, I really shouldn't have said that." Um, but I mean, in general, I enjoyed it. I mean, it was really quite, um, uh, you know, it was a pleasant experience. It was the first time I actually read the book in a way. Uh, before that, right. I'd read little you know, bits here and there. I kept changing it, and I'd read all of it at some point. But going from start to finish was a, you know, wasn't so bad. I, <laughs> I didn't feel um, – I know that we Brits sometimes overdo our understatements and our self-deprecation and stuff compared to the U.S., but I actually thought this book's not too bad. You know? <laughs> so I uh, quite enjoyed yeah. that re- realization. That's good. And was it, did it require a lot of takes? Were you able? Yeah. To well, it was a very, um, a very, uh, you know, oh, say advanced. I don't know how advanced it is, but very seamless technology, whereby I would read something and uh, I might just slightly swallow one of the words, and he would say, "We'll just do that again." And he'd go back to the the final word of the previous sentence or the final few words of the previous sentence. Um, such that I would hear that playing, so I was ready to say my next thing again. And that would happen several times. So for the book as a whole, which um, I think gave about 10 hours, maybe 10 to 12 hours of audio content, um, I think the time it took to develop that was about 20 to 24 hours. So um, it's you know roughly every minute uh, takes about two minutes to create, if that makes sense. Okay, that's not too terrible. No, it wasn't. It's partly because the technology was so good, I think. Um, okay, yeah, and of course, uh, I'll I'll link to where listeners can get the audiobook. I'll add that whenever it's great. available. That, but that would I, be great. And um, and yeah, I mean, it's funny. The, the, the only other thing to say from my perspective is just that I, you know, I really do want chess players to like this book, but I also want them to sort of, in a weird way, realize it's it's sort of about them, but not about them as well. Like it's um um. I'd like them to sort of take the chance to view chess as an observer rather than a participant. You know, the chess books are written for chess players, so it's all within the world. It's all caught up in that same set of experiences. This is a chance to kind of step outside it 
and um, yeah. witness it from, okay, someone who's been in it and knows it well, but is trying to communicate it to other people. You know, they're not my primary yeah. audience. They're like my, my core. They're my, my home base or whatever, but they're not my primary target. I'm trying to communicate to other people. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing other interviews with you where you get asked, like, how many moves you can see ahead. Well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all, all, all those fun yeah, questions. There's all that to look forward to. Although, in the early stages, I mean, look, there's a way of simply encapsulating how to understand what the book is. It's sort of three things, right? It's, um, it's a seer, it's a process of seeing, and it's the scene, right? And by that, I mean, I, the grandmaster author is the, is the seer, the one who's looking and, you know, observing. The process of seeing is the kind of chess world and all the chess stories that I bring to bear. But what is actually seen, like the ultimate inquiry, is really the, the kind of landscape of, of the world as a whole. The, you know, the, the, the existential predicament of the human being, the state of society today, the questions that we have to live with. And that's, so, so in a sense, the book is about life as a whole, but it's mediated by two things. One is my own life experience and the other is the, the nature of the chess world. Yeah, and as you say, since it's um, arranged in vignettes and they're, it's tied together, but it's, it doesn't need to be read strictly linear in a linear fashion. I do think every chess player will will if you you know if if you're not hanging on every word, there'll definitely be parts that deeply resonate with. with oh, every I, I hope so. Chess I hope so. I mean, there's definitely moments. There should be moments of recognition. I hope. Oh, that's what I'm doing, or that's yeah. why that matters, or that's how that felt. I very much hope so, and um, it would be great to know that chess players saw themselves in it and uh that they like it as well um yeah so jonathan i know that you've got to go you're super busy with work family book promotion but could i ask you one question from a listener of the podcast sure, that sure, was, uh, of, course, sent in? of course of course okay great so the way it works is uh people who help support the podcast can send in questions and this was actually a recent guest he's a chess trainer and uh you know strong player han shu who uh had to take this opportunity this rare opportunity to ask you about understanding the grunfeld wow your your very first chess book yeah, yeah. um so han says understanding the grunfeld is in my opinion the best introduction to the opening ever written in a way it is a time it is timeless because it emphasizes the opening principles instead of opening lines unfortunately it is no longer in print can jonathan rousen consider making it available in electronic format for forward chess or another similar um app Wow. Well, I'm very flattered and uh, lovely to hear that. And the answer is yes, sadly, it is out of print. Um, I believe Gambit, my publisher, would be the people who'd have to take that decision. The challenge with opening books, as I'm sure you'll understand, is that even if it explains the thematics of the opening well, that those thematics are connected to the theory of the moment, which, which is now 20 years old. Um, so the challenge would be somehow to reproduce it Electronically, I mean, it shouldn't. It's true, though. I mean, what you say is it shouldn't cost publisher much to produce it electronically um, if it's out of print. Yeah. So I don't know, uh, but I would certainly, um, I would encourage him to write to Gambit Publishing directly and make his case as strongly okay. as he can. I would certainly welcome that. But I mean, it is twenty years out of date theoretically. Um, yeah. Well, maybe you can even get someone to update the theory and just leave the the. Yeah. The although these things are often quite intertwined, as you might imagine. But um, right. But yeah. I, I doubt if I'll be doing that myself. But I mean, in fact, I quite, yeah, it doesn't I, seem I quite like miss the Grunfeld. I occasionally think I might play again, and I think what would I play? And when I'm playing Blitz and I play the Grunfeld, I do feel happy to see that position on the. You know, just after going D5, for a moment, I yeah. feel ah, I know this. I like this. Yeah, it's like a uh, yeah. song from your youth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's it, exactly how it feels. But then a few minutes later, I'm getting crushed in the center of the queen of the, <laughs> the, queen right, the deep yeah. or whatever. So, um, yeah. Cool. Well, thank you. And uh, just last thing, do you have any uh, any other stories that didn't make the cut, like chess-specific stories, whether it be from your time with Anand or other? I mean, you, you've uh, obviously met and encountered so many, um, you know, legends of the game. Gosh, I probably do. Um I hadn't expected the question, though. So, I mean, what's coming to mind is not in the book, actually, but it's a moment of realization. So I think I said that when I worked with Vichy, Peter Heine Nielsen was there, and so was uh, Rustam Kazmajanov, who the former FIDE world champion. Um, and there was a moment I played Kazmajanov in the Istanbul Olympiad in the year 2000. 
and people can see the game online. And there was the opening didn't go very well for Kazmajanov, and it's a good segue because I was playing black in a Grunfeld, and I sort of got the better of him for the first few moves. But then there was a moment around about the time he realized he might be worse, where he dug in psychologically, and there was something about that moment that was prismatic for me, and it made me realize something. He would just look so bloody determined. I just looked up <laughs> at him, and I saw this intense concentration, intense willpower, desire to solve his problems, and also desire to sort of impose his will on the game. And while I know that experience, and I've, I have some of it myself, and I can impose it on other players now and again, there was something about that moment I just thought, hmm, um, I don't see myself ever rising to that level of intensity. Um, huh, wow. And, it, and, it was, uh, and then you can see the game. I collapsed a few moves later. There was some kind of dodgy pawn sacrifice, and then he converted it uh, in style. I even remember offering him a draw after sacrificing the pawn uh, cheekily because I was just worse by that point. Um, but I do remember that moment well as a kind of, um, you know, we all reach our limits at some point. And, that, you know, my limit was reasonably high, but there were many who were better. And uh, I remember that moment for, actually, Kazimierzano, but that was the tournament he went over 2,700. And it was, you know, a little bit before he won the world title, but it was, he was um, already getting very, very good. And I just remember that sense of drive and ferocious willpower. And, you know, it's not like I had none of those qualities, but, I did recognize that I didn't have that much. So I welcome that memory partly because it was also about the, the, the love of the Grunfeld and also the limits of it as well. Huh. Yeah. I, I think that I can certainly relate to that on a lower level. <laughs> um, yeah. I've had, had similar moments. Um, yeah. And sometimes it's the, sometimes it's the competitive aspect, as you say, the will to win, but it can also just be the sort of, um, the uh the hardware you know yeah you feel, that's right you feel. They're, you're all limited yeah and i've had that as well i've had that when you know looking briefly at positions with kramnik or anand or uh when i analyzed with magnus after i played him in 2008 or aronian a couple of times even not quite as high people like Luke mcshane or matthew sadler or nigel short or mickey adams people who are, are somewhat better but uh not necessarily right at the top and they um you know you just see the fluency and think ah I don't think I could ever quite get there. Um, yeah. But it's, it's quite, and I, in the book I call that successful underachievement. I don't know if you remember that part, but it's a, there's something important about, you know, not, not entirely explaining away that feeling of regret or inferiority or, you know, I think the, it's, it's not correct to say none of these things matter and, you know, uh, I did well and it doesn't matter that I didn't do more. I think it's okay to feel a little bit frustrated and a little, it's okay to have a little bit of regret and it's okay to, to wish you'd done a bit better. You know, I certainly still do. I have moments where I think I could have climbed a bit higher. You know, I maybe could have been, who knows, world top 50 or something if I pushed a bit harder. But equally, it's very healthy to recognize the upper limits and just to know actually there were some constraints. That, you know, there was scope to get better, but equally there was, there was a limit to that scope. Um, because the world's yeah. full of the story that there are no limits to your dreams, blah, blah, blah. And actually... I disagree. <laughs> you know, I don't think that's really a mature way of looking. Like, by all means, make more of yourself. By all means, develop and get better. Um, and push yourself as far as you can go, but just be mature enough to recognize that there may be limits at some point. Yeah, I I, I reluctantly agree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay, well, Jonathan, this has been incredible. It's, um, it's a real honor for me. I'm, as I said, longtime fan and uh, really enjoyed the book. And uh, um, I definitely... I uh, encourage listeners to, to check it out. And um, if listeners want to keep up with everything you're doing, is there, I know that you're reasonably active on Twitter. Is there any other yeah, this is uh, it's funny, way it's funny. I've been so busy. I, I'm, I'm about a year, about more than a year ago when I began the contract with Bloomsbury. Um, I, I said I would create a website in time for the book, but I haven't done it yet. Um, initially, <laughs> get me on Twitter, but if, if you see a website hastily compiled in the next few days, you'll know why. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, you're in some time trouble. I'm in time trouble. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I've got too many moves to make in too little time. <laughs> yes. yeah. Okay. Well, we'll let you get to it. Thanks. Thanks a lot. No, it's, been, it's been a lot it's of fun. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me on. Special thanks, as always, to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank everyone who helps spread the word about Perpetual Chess. The ways to do so include writing a positive review on Apple Podcasts or another podcast platform, telling a friend, 
spreading the word on social media, all of that stuff helps. But most of all, I want to thank the people who support the show financially. Without you guys, Perpetual Chess would not be possible. So I would like to give thanks to the following people and entities, my PayPal and Patreon Perpetual Chess partners. Here we go. They are extra special thanks to Chessable.com and Quality Chess Books and the Capital City Chess Club, Apprentice Chess Twitch Channel, Andrew Bach, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porto, Kathy Cow, Chad Oliver, Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Greg Natel, Greg Shahadi, Guvin Manet, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Cromarty, Kelly Palmer, Lone Pine Chess, Lorraine Duray, the law offices of Stuart Katz, Michael Can, my main man, Moonmaster 9000, Seattle Chess Club, Thomas Stonix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryan, Todd Kennedy, and I'd also like to thank Aaron Waffler, Ace Vallega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, FM Andre Tarakov, Andrew Perry, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Chad Hilton, Chris Balcom, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalicki, aka Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Courtney Fry, David Kofer, Daniel Gell, Daniel Ginsburg, Daniel Lucas of US Chess, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Cramley, CEO of Chessable.com, Daylin Shelton, Dwayne Edmonds, Ethan Smith, Donnie Ariel, who may be an IM elect or maybe just has the titles, and I'm not sure if that makes him an IM elect, but thank you, Donnie, anyway. Fox Valley Chess Club, Frank Tortoris, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vanderveld, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Han Shu, Harish Srinivasan, James Banastia, Jason Onfang, Jason Woolham, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, JJ Stranad, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Zlosnik, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, GM Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Larry Reiforth, Laura Belyavsky, Lucio Casada Silva, Martin Knudsen, Matthew Passi, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Miguel Araspide, Mr. Mike Shahadi, Nate Salon, Neil Bruce, Olaf Mueller Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passi Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Swanee, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randy Temple, Ricky Grahava, Roy Yearwood, Ryan Berg, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, WGM Tatyav Abrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tomas Komanich, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Victor Vrancouge, William H. Brock, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng, and Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks a lot, everyone. I will catch you all next week. Podcast Network.